All right. Well, we are, excuse me, concluding today a short series that I have entitled uh, Contending for the Faith. And we saw two weeks ago, the beginning of this series, this, this call, this commission really for the church. Why don't I read to you one of the passages we looked at? That the church is to protect, preserve, and really propagate the truth that we find in the scriptures. Paul writes to young Timothy and he says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That the church is to be that institution that, that supports and holds up and preserves the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And our charge in that message was that we ought to know the faith, believe the faith, and contend or defend the faith. And all of this, all of this contending, all of this holding up, everything that we're going to say begins with knowing the faith. And if God's people do not know what they believe, then all of this stuff really falls apart from the very beginning. So we ought to know, we ought to believe, of course, have faith in Christ, but also allow the faith, the truth of the word to really impact and affect and permeate all of who we are, that it might speak to every aspect of our life, and then to defend, to be to be able and willing to give a defense for the hope that is within us, or as, you, as, as, the, as Jude wrote, to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Last week we looked at the source of this faith, which is of course the Word of God. And we said three things. Much to say about the Word, right? It is inspired. It is the very words of God. It is inerrant, without error. It is infallible. It cannot error, cannot err. But we said last week, firstly, that the Word of God speaks with authority, that it carries the full weight of the authority of the living God. And because of that, it speaks in a way that it binds our conscience to believe the things that we, that we read there, that we ought to submit the entirety of our lives to the entirety of God's Word. Secondly, we said it is sufficient. That we don't need to look in any other book, any other sacred text to understand that we have been given all things for life and godliness. All of the difficult questions of life, where do I come from? What's wrong with me? What is the solution? Where am I going after life? How does a man be saved? How can I walk in obedience before Christ? All of these things are found in the sufficient scripture. And lastly, it is necessary. It is desperately needed today in the church. It seems so often that it sits on the shelf. It doesn't have a central place in the life of the people of God and sometimes in the life of the church. So that was kind of the what. What is, this, what is this call? Contend for the faith. It is found in the Scriptures. Today I want to get into a little bit of the how as we wrap this up. How, as Peter says, do we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the reasons, just one of the reasons that kind of um, spurned this series on was the State of Theology survey that I shared some of the results of with you two weeks ago. That was a that was uh, some research that was done by Ligonier and by Lifeway to kind of poll Americans to see what they believe about the Bible. And we narrowed that data down to believing Christians to see what they believe. And the, the results are pretty, pretty bad, right? We don't really know what we believe. And the survey was sent out to the church here. And um, our results, you can see them. If you go back to that link, you can look at what everybody said, not personally, but as a group. And they were pretty consistent with the national average. There was some ebbs and flows. Um, but we don't know what we believe. 
in many ways. We, 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 there's an illiteracy when it comes to biblical doctrine. And I, what I want to do today is just kind of grapple with two questions. How did we get here? <clears throat> and how do we write this ship? How do we get where we are today? And how do we write this ship? So as I open, I'm going to read to you a text from Jeremiah chapter 6. If you want to follow along with me, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, just one verse. There's Bibles in the pews if you need one. They're the burgundy, red-ish colored books. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Lord God, we do come before you now and recognize that this is your word, your holy word, your infallible word, and I am a fallible, unholy man, and I'm weak, Lord, and ask for help today, for strength to, to preach, to proclaim. I pray that any falsehood, any error would fall on deaf ears, pray that you would speak through your servant by your spirit, pray that we would receive your word, that we would be challenged, encouraged, strengthened. Pray that you would have your way sovereignly in souls as you do, Lord, by your perfect purpose. We trust you in that. We pray that you might work. Pray that we might, we might take up this call. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we get here? How do we get to a place of, of biblical illiteracy? How do we get to a place where many people don't know if Jesus was God or not? Where that question is a question that people have to grapple with. I think there's many reasons. And let me just say, first and foremost, um, I'm not intending to stand up here as the guy that, that has truth, kind of, I got it all figured out, and everyone else is wrong, or, or the guy that, that every other church is apostate, or every other church does it wrong, and we have it all figured out. I don't mean to say that at all, but I believe when we look at the landscape of things, there is some room for critique. There is some room to say, why, why, why is this the case? Why are we here? And I'm not saying all of this based on one little survey, but just observing evangelicalism for, for quite a while, looking at the things that churches themselves say and post on social media and teach, talking to Christians, professing Christians on the street and, and everywhere else, there seems to be a trend that we don't necessarily have a grasp on biblical doctrine. So how do we get here? I think we look at that text, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, and we can make some application here. As it says, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in those paths. There is tried and true path, ancient ways that the people of God have been discipled. How, how the church has, has functioned and raised up and taught its people. But it seems in the modern era that we have said, like the, the people here, we will not walk in it. And I think one of the big concerns that, that I have, at least with the church today, the modern church, is this desire for what is novel, desire for what is, what is new, something fresh, something different. Got to keep up with people in 2020. We have to constantly change our practices or look for something neat and cool that is happening in the world that we can bring it into the church so that people will be excited, so that we can put people in the pew. Let me read you a quote from a book 
um, a helpful book called Grounded in the Gospel, um, Growing Christians the Old-Fashioned Way, co-authored by J.I. Packer and a man named Parrott. And it says, it says this, Many contemporary evangelicals profess a desire to be on the cutting edge of our culture. We frequently look for new or novel ways to do things. We long to be relevant, to be accepted. We're ready to change course on a dime in order to meet people's needs. What we've been doing hasn't worked, we reason. The old models and programs have not produced the anticipated results we discover, so we commit to new models and new programs that the best research suggests will get the job done. Or we look to what others, quote-unquote, successful churches are doing, and we convince ourselves that imitating them offers the best prospect for success. Again, I'm convinced that many of the issues we have in the modern church is this desire to be modern. We've chosen, at times, experience over substance. We have chosen short, feel-good messages with little biblical or theological content over biblical exposition. We have said that doctrine divides churches, and in, 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 I think sometimes with good intentions, trying to, trying to bring unity, but in so doing, we've lost our biblical foundation and identity. Uh, we have been told by our leaders, all the church growth kind of gurus, that it is wrong to talk about doctrine, it is wrong to talk about sin. Today, people don't, they don't want to hear that stuff. It's not what modern believers want to be taught about. Uh, we set out with our programs to disciple people, and we expect certain results, and when they do not come, we abandon those and move on to the next new trend that has come into the church. Now, you may be here and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, here I am, and, and we have hymnals, and there's a piano, right? And I don't see all this stuff going on. But just come with me and check the mail a couple times, and all the stuff that's sent to a church, to our emails, calling on a phone, all of the new ideas, new toys, new things, new ways to teach people that you just have to have if you really want to see your church grow. Anything from expositing movies instead of the Word of God, which happens quite a bit in many churches, to that fancy espresso bar, the coffee bar that you just have to have, that many Starbucks, if you really want your church to be successful. We see many churches even now popping up in the valley, um, and their motto is basically, we're not your grandmother's church, right? We're going to do things differently. We're going to do it like nobody else does. And um, I don't know if that's the answer. So how do we write this ship? I don't want to make this a long critique. How do, we, how do we turn the tides? How do we get back on that right path? My, my belief is that as we move forward, we don't look for what is new. We don't look for some new fancy creation on how we're going to train up Christians so that they can know the truth. We don't look around at other churches that are supposedly successful. Usually we measure success by a lot of people packing in a building, right? And that must be a successful ministry. But then we look backwards. We look into the past. We look at those old pasts, those ancient ways, that those tried and true methods that faithful men of God have walked in, that faithful churches have walked in. We need to be catechized. We need to be catechized now. Let me tell you a story before we talk about that. I was reading a book about an author, and he's a Christian teacher. And he uh, was on a plane, and the guy next to him asked him, what do you do for a living? And he told him, I'm a Christian educator. And this guy went on to tell him about his faith journey that he had walked in his life. And he was a nominal Roman Catholic, and his wife was a kind of nominal Jew. 
And they got married, and it was all good. They didn't really, that didn't matter until they were going to have kids. And when they decided to have kids, they said, hey, we got we to gotta pick a religion here. Now, I'm not advocating that that's how you <laughs> come to faith. But they wanted to pick, what are we going to do? It's going to be kind of confusing, right? You're Jewish, I'm Catholic. So the, the husband said, I'll become, a, I'll become a Jew. I'll convert to Judaism. And what's relevant for our, for our topic today is that for him to become a Jew, he had to go and meet with the rabbi for several months as he was trained up, discipled, catechized in the practices and beliefs of Judaism before he was then brought in as a full, as a full member. The author then told a story about his sister, same situation. She was brought up nominal Protestant. Her husband that she married was a Roman Catholic. Everything was fine. They didn't really care until they had children. And they said, hey, we, gotta, we, have, to pick, we have to pick a religion here. What are we going to be? And the wife this time said, hey, I'll convert. I'll become a Roman Catholic. And so she did that. And what happened? Same thing. She had to go sit with a priest for several months and be discipled, be trained up in the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church before she was accepted as a member. Now, we know that as, a, as Christians, salvation comes by grace through faith, right? There's no classes that you can go to uh, to become a Christian. There is no entry process like this. But is there any wisdom to glean from these systems where when new people come in to the faith, they are trained up and discipled and thoroughly given an understanding of the faith? And any other thing that we do, if you go to a job, you don't just kind of show up and just wing it and figure it out as you go, but there's a process of orientation, of instruction for new people. What often happens in, an, in, a, in a Christian church, if we, can, if we can just be honest, people come into the church, and we ask them, are you a believer? And they say, yes. And we say, praise the Lord. And they come again, and praise God, they come again, third week, and we're trying to hire them onto this committee or that job, serve here, come and join us doing this. Don't really know what they believe, don't know their background, don't know their theological foundation. But we got needs, right? There's holes, and we want to fill them. So get on board, right? Is there something in between these two models? I'm not advocating that a guy has to be interviewed for 12 weeks before they can come to a worship service. But I think there's some wisdom we can glean from these other groups. So what is this catechesis? I know I'm, some people are freaked out, like, oh, he's trying to get us Roman Catholic or Lutheran or some high church Episcopalians. Catechesis, all it is, is, a, it, is a, it comes from a Greek verb, katecheo. So it's a biblical word. Right? It means to share or communicate what you receive or to teach or to instruct. All it is is one of the New Testament words that is translated into teaching or instruction. And my definition that I'm going to use today, which is not original to me, what am I talking about when I say we need to be catechized? It is the church's ministry of grounding and growing God's people in the gospel and its implications for doctrine, devotion, duty, and delight. Let me read that again. The church's ministry of grounding and growing God's people in the gospel and its implications for doctrine, devotion, duty, and delight. So I'm not talking about uh, a long process where you have to go to catechism and then you go to confirmation and then you can go to First Communion and all of those structures that are put in place in Roman Catholic churches and others. But what I am talking about is diligent, systematic teaching of biblical truth. And I'm using this word a little bit hesitantly, but intentionally that we might get past kind of that, that instant, 
you know, shock of, wait a minute, that's not a, is this a Christian thing? Is this a Catholic thing? Simply I'm talking about diligent, systematic teaching of biblical truth. A bit different maybe than what happens in the pulpit. All right, in the pulpit, we're going through books of the Bible. And in preaching, there is application, there is exhortation. And you can't, you, you, you come to the text and you have what is there, right? You preach the doctrine, you preach the teaching that is found in that passage on that day. But this process is a bit more formal going through the basic tenets of Christianity. Just brief, briefly, um, is this a Christian thing? Has this happened in the past? This process of teaching Christians by catechizing them um, was, it thrived from the 2nd to 5th century. Actually, in the early church, about 2nd century, if you wanted to be baptized, you had to be catechized for a year before you would be brought forward to the waters of baptism. Part of that was because um, they were worried about spies infiltrating the church because of persecution. But also they wanted people to be grounded in the truth, made sure they knew what it was that they believed before they made that public commitment. Kind of fell out of favor in the Dark Ages after the 5th century. You get into the, a time period where for, for, for a long time the Bible is only translated into Latin. And the common guy in the pew doesn't even know Latin, can't understand the scripture. So the priest stands up and he reads from the scriptures. And most of the people in the church don't even know what is being said. So obviously there's this huge kind of illiteracy of, of biblical truth and biblical doctrine. And we have then in the Protestant Reformation, one of the big recoveries in the Reformation was um, a call back to the common man in the pew having the Bible in his own language. That was one of the, the desires of the Protestant Reformers. And there was a desire there to recover this catechetical teaching, a systematic teaching of scriptures, so that the normal person would be grounded in the truth, and we wouldn't have this state that we do today. And that's why we have so many great confessions and catechisms from 15, 1600s, because God's people were devoted to teaching doctrine and theology to the common man in the pew. About the last hundred or so years, again, it fell out of favor, for various reasons, won't get into that. But turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to see here kind of this biblical charge on how it is that we ought to raise up believers in the faith. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently with your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Just brief context here. <clears throat> Deuteronomy uh, basically means second law, second giving of the law. In chapter 5, Moses just, gave, just recited again the, second, the Ten Commandments for the people. They just heard the, the reading of the law of God. And Moses then is instructing them of how they ought to receive this word. And the first thing that I want to draw out from this short passage is that this biblical teaching, uh, it begins in the home. It begins in the home. 
Again, look at verse 6. These words I commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, I believe, I'm a pastor, so I, I, I do believe with conviction that the teaching ministry of the church is vital, that it is central to the life of the church. I believe that God's program for discipleship is the local church, and it begins, the heart of that happens on the Lord's Day as the church gathers to worship. But if you think about, for us right now, we only have a morning, a morning service, and, and if we go long, we'll be out of here at 1230, and that's an hour and a half of the entire week. Just one hour and a half that, that we have for biblical instruction. And, and if that's all you have, and I say that hesitantly, if that's all you're getting, praise God that you're in church. And I hope that everyone would be committed to that. But if that's all we're getting, if the rest of the week we have no more biblical intake, then we're going to be, we're going to be hungry. Right? We're, going to be, we're going to be starving. We're going to be limping along come the weekend, come Friday, Saturday, and getting into the Lord's Day. We're going to be pretty, pretty uh, malnourished. But we see here that this teaching ministry, it actually begins in the home, that teaching and instruction is actually a, re a responsibility, a duty of parents that they have to train up their children in the faith. Now, you may say, well, this is, this is Deuteronomy. This is Old Covenant. This is Israel still in the wilderness. I don't know if this is relevant for us today, but Paul takes up this same line of thought in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of, of the Lord. And that word there, diligent, in, in some translation it's, it says impress. It is a Hebrew word that means to wet or to sharpen a blade. And the idea there is that the word needs to make, it should make, a deep impression upon the learner. Let me read you a quote. He says, the image that is given here is that of the engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and chisel into his hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. So imagine that. You have a hammer and you have a chisel and you have a wall of granite and you're going to painstakingly take your hammer and your chisel and, and, and engrave a biblical passage into that slab of stone. He says, The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed. But once done, the message is there to stay. Thus it is that the generation of Israelites to come must receive and transmit the words of the Lord's everlasting covenant. Do you see the idea there that as parents, it is our charge to impress God's word onto the hearts of our children, that it may, might be like, like words that were etched into the stone of granite, that they are there, sunk in there, deep there, impressed upon them. I mean, these are, these are eternal truths of an infinite God. These are things that ought to be taken seriously, right? Now, not everyone here has children. Not everyone here has children in the home. But I don't believe that gets us off the hook for this passage. I think there's broad application to be made here that even as believers, anyone that is in covenant with God ought to take up this mantle, whether it is husband and wife, as Paul instructs, Husbands to wash their wives in the water of the word, whether it is just a single Christian at home, widow, widower, or what have you, single young person. I believe that this, this text can still be applied to us, to you, 
that these words that he has commanded shall be on our hearts, that we ought to diligently then teach them to ourselves, be a people inundated with the word of God. We see secondly that this biblical, this faithful biblical instruction, it ought to be diligent and consistent. Diligent and consistent. Look at verse 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, some Jews down the road in the future after post-biblical Jews, they took this text to a, a whole different level, a, a serious level. Maybe you've heard of a phylactery. And some Jews took this text absolutely literally and actually made little boxes where they wrote little tiny scrolls with, with a few verses on, and they actually put them on their head, and they would wear them on their head. They would put them on their hand. They would put them on the doors of their house. I'm not, I'm not certain that that was God's intention, that they literally were to bind the word of God on their heads, but I think he is speaking of the centrality of the word of God in all of our life, that our lives would be encompassed by this word. Notice it is when you sit, when you walk, when you lie, and when you rise. There is no area, there is no sphere of your life where the word of God is not to be impressed upon our hearts. Some of you may have may be involved, or maybe you've known a friend who is in one of these multi-level marketing uh, deals. You know, today a lot of people are into the essential oil thing. And you know, if you, if you, uh, the, the deal is you, you sell your stuff and you get people to join and they get people to join and, and all of a sudden you're rich, right? Anybody ever known one of these people that are just, just fired? <laughs> uh, if just briefly, Robert, if you ever hear this, I love you. My stepdad, uh, we joke about it, but a long time ago, he, my stepdad got into something called Melaleuca and man, he was preaching that Melaleuca gospel. I mean, it was day and night. It was it it got to the point where it was a contention at Christmas and Thanksgiving. It was there was fights that were happening because he was about it. And he's a driven man. He's a, he's going to set a goal. He's going to he's going to achieve his goal. And he understood that to really be successful at this thing, you had to talk up. You had to eat, think, and sleep Melaleuca. And he did. To the point where we would tell him, enough, you know, we're done. We, we don't want to hear it. But he understood in his eyes, this thing was so valuable and so important that he was going to talk about it whenever and however and to whoever he could. And just as an aside, oh, that we would have that same passion for the gospel of grace. I mean, as I was writing that and thinking about that, I was convicted that he had so much passion for chemicals that won't get your kids sick. It's a good thing. But do we have the gospel of grace? And he was that guy that every checker, every place, oh, he's doing it again. Oh, man. <laughs> but we all know those evangelists at any moment can just, boom, I'm just doing it, you know, and praise God for that boldness. But, oh, that we would have that sort of, that same sort of hold, the gospel in our hands is so precious that how could I keep it to myself? How can I not share it with any person that might hear but you see the idea there that, that we are to have this word with us at all times, that it is flowing through our minds when we sit, when we walk, when we lie, when we rise. There's no area of our life that the word of God is not influencing and impacting. And I think it shows that, that it's not just during some little segment of formal teaching. 
Um, I, I heartily commend to anyone, anyone, especially families, but anyone, to have nightly family worship, to have devotions together, to, to pray and read the scriptures and sing together to the Lord, instruct your children. But it seems to me that this call here is more than just that 25 minutes that we set aside, but all of life is, is under the Word of God. All of life is applied to the Word of God as all of life is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. So it is, begins at home, it ought to be diligent and consistent, and thirdly, it is in view of coming generations. As we think about this, the church being catechized, being trained up in biblical truth, us and our kids, it is in light of the coming generations. If you look down to verse 20, <coughs> it says when you, in Deuteronomy 6, it says when your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord our God that he has commanded you? Our kids come and say, why, why do we do all this stuff? Why, why do, what's up with all these laws? What is, what is up with all this stuff, this Bible stuff? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now remember, this is a generation that saw the redemptive works of God with their eyes. Sadly, we read in Hebrews, ultimately many of them died in unbelief. They, they were not believers in the promises of God, but they saw with their eyes God deliver his people out of Egypt. And we see in the Old Testament uh, especially that God is always impressing upon his people to teach and remind the coming generations of all that God has done in the past. We see him calling his people to raise up memorials, raise up those, those rocks of remembrance, those Ebenezers, right? So that when the coming generations forget the things that God did, they can point and say, remember that God delivered us here. Remember God's grace here. And we do the same thing. We raise up memorials when, when big events happen. We think of 9-11, you know, never forget. And we raise that memorial to remember the fallen, but also to remember that there is great evil in this world, that we need to be on alert and on guard. And we see this call that when the future generations come, they ought to be trained up and know what God has done. They ought to know the truth. We ought to be prepared to have an answer for them. Now, I think of my own family, and it, is <clears throat> it almost feels like we're raising two generations. Uh, my oldest daughter, our oldest daughter, will be 20 next month. Her sister, who just walked out, is 17. And then Charlotte is three, and Noah is four months old. Right? And... Sadly, uh, the older girls, they saw the destruction of sin. They saw the things that living in the world does to a family, to a relationship with husband and wife, father and their children, and we are today still reaping the sin that I sowed all those years ago. They've also seen the grace of God. They've seen, Lord willing, the, the transforming power of the gospel as it enters into a home. They've seen a marriage slowly but surely be reformed, right, according to the Word of God. They've seen 
the relationship with myself and them be, be restored slowly but surely. But these little ones right now, Lord willing, they're being raised up in the faith. But there's always that, that, that potential with kids that have always been in the church that it kind of just becomes just this common thing, right? I mean, what, we just, why do we always do this Bible stuff? Why do we always pray? Why do we always go to church? It just becomes something that we've always done. It's always been there, and it, cannot, it can lose its significance sometimes, I think, for children. And there may be a day when Charlotte or Noah comes to mom and dad and asks the question, why do, why do we do all these things? Why, why, do we have, why do we have God's Word? And we would have to answer them. We were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and did great things before our eyes, and He brought us out from there that He might bring us in and give us the land that He has placed us in today, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Beloved, this idea of catechizing is not just some religious word. It's not just some concept that we can take it or leave it. But it is for the preservation of our souls and for the coming generations. We live in a world, our kids live in a world, your grandchildren live in a world that hates God that wants to destroy the faith that our children have. We live in a world that wants to make it illegal for us to teach our children biblical truth. Our tax money goes to pay for universities that are full of professors that see it as their duty to destroy the biblical foundation that, that our children that we send to them are, have been brought up with. This training up of our kids, this this faithful biblical teaching of our children and of ourselves may very well be the glue that keeps our children together, that keeps them grounded as they depart from the home. Because I think that if we, if we think that we're going to send off our kids with a shallow, emotionally driven faith and think that it's going to stand up to the scrutiny, to the suffering, to the temptation, to the trials that this world is certainly going to bring at them the moment they leave the house and is now, and I think we are naive at best. So will their faith be shattered? Will they have a foundation to stand upon? Will they be able to answer those difficult questions that will come? Or will they be swept away like a toddler that falls into the rogue river? They're standing on that rock in one moment and then gone, swept away by the currents. We are, I don't believe this is an overstatement, we are at war, in a war that has eternal implications. And there is a world out there, there is an enemy out there that seeks to devour our children, that wants to see them abandon the faith, abandon God, that wants to see them celebrating all of the things that God hates. We must be diligent to raise up our children in the faith. Lastly, this catechesis, if you will, this rigorous biblical training is and must be a vital element of the ministry of the local church. I want to read to you, we have three books in the Bible that are called, we call the pastorals, books that were written by Paul to Timothy and Titus. These are young pastors, and they're very helpful for ministers, but they're also helpful for Christians to see what is 
proper in the church? What is, what is central in the church? How a, sh- a church ought to function and what needs to be the heart of what the church does? I'm just going to read to you a multiple texts. 1 Timothy 4, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So the things that you have learned, if you put them before the rest of the brothers, you will be a good servant, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine you have followed. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This was the central thing that Timothy and all pastors are to devote themselves to, to the reading, exhorting, and teaching of the Word of God. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, or the NIV says, on your doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see this emphasis on his character and upon the things that he teaches. O Timothy, guard the deposit of entrusted to you. That is that faith once for all delivered to the saints. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We get back to this concept of the church being stewards, stewards of the faith. We've been given this deposit that we ought to guard. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, it's not just that the pastor is to be one that is teaching the flock, but that he is also pouring into other men that God has called and gifted to teach others as well. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And lastly, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And where does that authority come from? What is the source? Where do we rebuke from? Is it just our intellect, our wisdom? It is from the Word of God. These are just some of the imperatives given to Timothy and Titus. But I think we can see there... That diligent, consistent teaching is to be the central focus of an elder in the church and of the ministry of the church. So again, how do we write this ship? I believe that we need to get back to the old past, get back to the ancient ways. Now, things are not just better because they were old, but there are tried and true methods that I believe come from the Word of God. That We need not look around at modern inventions. We need not look around at the things of the world, how the world builds a corporation or a building, what those sort of folks say about how we ought to build our church, but that it needs to be centrally focused upon training up one another in the Word. So it starts with faithful biblical instruction in the home. It ought to be diligent, consistent teaching impressed upon our hearts and that of our families, and then faithful biblical instruction in the local church. So I can't speak for all the other churches in this valley, Um, I can only speak on behalf of the church that God has called me to be a a servant of, and that is here at First Baptist Church. And I want to do, continue to do everything that I can to to fill, to stuff hearts and minds full of biblical truth. Um, And I've been trying to do that and will continue to try to do that. And one of the ways you've been hearing me talking a little bit about 
catechisms, and I know some people are a little, why is he pushing these things on us? But I'm going to continue to try to put sound um, resources in your hands. So again, I still have some more of these. Baptist Catechism, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, These are not the Scripture, but they summarize the things of the Word, and they've stood the test of time. Both are written in the late 1600s, been used by many Baptist churches for hundreds of years. Um, And when you think about some of the simple questions a person might ask, like, what is baptism? Or what is the Lord's Supper? Or what is sin? Or what is saving faith? Or what does it mean that Christ is a mediator? These questions, and and, and we know what they are, I think, but if someone asks you that, would you be able to answer a, a simple, straightforward question like that? What is saving faith? What is baptism? What does it represent? Why do we, why do we even do it? Right? There's, there's many of those sort of questions answered in easy summary form in these documents. I commend them to you. I have some more. I can get some more if you want to take advantage of these for whether it's just personal instruction or family worship. Uh, please do. I think you will be better for it. And secondly, what I want to do is beginning uh, November 1st. That's a Sunday in a few weeks. We're going to kick back our, or kick off again our Sunday school hour. So since COVID happened and all of that, we put Sunday school on a, on a pause. Um, we have Sunday school here from 9.45 to 10.30. I know everyone's got used to sleeping in. That's, that's like early, like, man, you got you to really get up, right? And, and let me just say uh, that I understand that for whatever reason, not everyone can make it. There's no, there's no guilt or requirement that you come to Sunday school. Um, I also understand with small children, it's difficult. Erica and Charlotte and Noah will not be attending because if they get here at 945 by 11, they're done. <laughs> you know, they, they've been good girls and boys and they've had their time and uh, it will be difficult for her and everyone else. <laughs> so uh, my wife will not be there and that's why. Uh, but if you can make it out, I want to invite you out. 945, we cut it off at 1030 promptly so that when people are coming in, there can be a time of fellowship. If you're serving in the service, there's time for preparation. So what are we going to do? Uh, we're going to finish this book at the outset. If you, have, if you come uh, after COVID, we were going through this book uh, midweek. It is a book that was put out by MacArthur, John MacArthur, Grace to You Ministries. Um, and it's basically uh, teaching through the fundamentals of the faith, a catechism, if you will. We're about halfway through. We're on the topic of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're here and you're coming in midstream, I apologize, but I committed to those folks that we would finish this book at some time. I think this is a good opportunity to do that. Um, it's like $6.99, cheapestplacechristianbooks.com. Um, if you want to check it out, let me know. Um, but those are a couple things that I want to do to continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ so that we will know what it is that we believe and have the ability to then give a defense for the hope that lies within us. So the answer again, faithful biblical teaching begins in the home. I think it needs to be diligent and consistent with a view of the coming generations that we can pass down, that we can be stewards. Think about this, church. Those of you that have children, grandchildren, what would you rather pass down to your kids? A nice home and a quarter million in stocks or this great deposit of eternal truth engraved upon their tablets of their hearts. So it ought to be diligent and consistent in view of the coming generation, and it needs to be and will be a vital element of the local church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you've given us your truth, that you have revealed yourself to us 
in the scriptures and you have preserved the scriptures that we can open uh, this book and know that it is the very words of God. It is unlike any other text that we have in this world. And it speaks into our life and it, and it has the ability to transform. It has the ability to bring spiritual life from those that are outside of you that do not know you. So we thank you for your word. We pray that you would continue to press it, impress it upon our hearts that we might be people of the book, that we might be growing. And I, and I, and I truly believe that as we grow in our understanding of the faith, we will grow in, in godliness. We will grow in a, in a deep trust for you, Lord. So we pray that you might bring that to bear, that you might bring much fruit out of our studies and our endeavors. Thank you for this time, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.